Hello, hello. Thank you so much for listening. Today I am speaking with Paul Jarvis. Paul is a designer, author, teacher, software creator, podcaster. He's written four books, built several software companies, and has taught over 10,000 students through his online courses, The Creative Class, Chimp Essentials, and Grow Your Audience. He also hosts two podcasts and has a weekly email called The Sunday Dispatches. What makes me interested to speak with Paul is his unique ability to go his own way. Paul is a trend buster, and he seems to keep growing his body of work without ever looking over his shoulder or at what anybody else is doing. His work has appeared in Fast Company, USA Today, CNBC, Forbes, Newsweek, BuzzFeed, Lifehacker, and he reaches over 50,000 people per month with his writing. Paul is currently writing a book called Company of One, which you can follow along with for updates by signing up to his weekly mailing list. So I'm really excited. The first episode is with my good friend, Paul Jarvis. Uh, He has done so many different things online from creating the website for Marie Forleo, for uh, creating the website for Daniel Laporte, making Chimp Essentials, which is a MailChimp course, Grow Your Audience, the creative class, uh, multiple software companies. He sort of just does it all. And I feel like you've just been one of those people that's so consistently there online making really high quality stuff. So I'm really excited to be able to just ask you some questions and hear more about how you balance all of that and uh, yeah, how you sort of built a career to be a company of one. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's jump in. So what I wanted to start with, because you've got so many different projects that are out there in the world, I know a lot of them are still bringing in revenue for you. I wanted to hear just in your own words, how you describe what it is that you sell. Um, And I think it's an interesting question because I think sometimes there's the outward facing uh, items that you sell and it's very clear, but there's also the way you think about how you build and sell products. Um, So yeah, if I was to ask you, like, what do you sell? How would you describe that to me? Yeah, I think I would say that I sell me. Like I sell Paul Jarvis, right? Because if, if you think about it, if somebody goes on Amazon and is like, oh, I want to buy a business book and they like look on Amazon and there's like, I don't know, 10,000 business books or something like that. I don't know which one to pick. But like if I was on like your newsletter or if I knew about you on social or if I had read an interview from you, I'd be like, hmm, I know, I know this David Sherry character. I think, I think I would want to read a business book by him. So I think that that's really what I sell. Like I, I sell me. So if it's like if I'm making a course like Chimp Essentials, then people aren't buying it because it's just Mailchimp training. They're buying it because it's Mailchimp training that I did, or they're buying like a book on a topic that they probably heard from a million other people that I wrote. And I think that that is really important because I think that I need to lean, like as a creator, as anybody that's creating anything, you kind of need to lean into you because you're the one, you're, you're what's being sold over and over again, whether it's software or paintings or music or anything else. It's like people are buying from you, not necessarily just because of the the topic of the thing or the, the content of the thing. They're buying it because you specifically, you were the one who made it and nobody else. So that's what they want. So that's what, that's what you have to give them. That's what, that's what I, that's what I try to give people when they, when but, they buy from me. 
doesn't it take confidence? I mean, it seems like there's some level of confidence that needs to happen for somebody to be able to put themselves kind of on the ticket like you've done with everything. And, um, you know, how did you develop that? Because I feel like one thing that's fun about following you online is you're totally okay with people not liking your work um, or, you know, not wanting to just subscribe to your newsletter, whatever it is. Like, how do you develop that? Yeah, so I think for as as far as like putting yourself, your true self out there, I think that is really easy but really scary to do, right? So like to just be yourself, like I'm not smart enough to put on a front or to like be anybody else, but that doesn't mean that it's not scary as shit to to do that. But I feel like I would rather people see who I am, especially I would rather people see who I am before they buy from me then like buy for me and be like, what the fuck is this? Like, what? And then like, I would like a refund. Like, I don't want to give somebody a refund. I want somebody to only buy something from me if they're 100% sure that it's going to help them. Or if like, I'm the right person to be teaching them. Because there's other people that like, write similar stuff as me or teach similar courses as me. So like, I want people to see me. Like, I want people to see my style. I want people to get an idea of that. I don't necessarily think, like, I definitely think that confidence is a component of that, but I'm also not the most confident dude. So, like, I think a lot of it more comes down to it's easier to run a business where people kind of get who you are and the people that don't get it or that don't like it can leave. So then I don't have to deal with them as customers. I just have to deal with them as like unsubscribers, which is fine because like I don't even look at those numbers. So it's just, it's, it's less work for me as a creator to just let those people fall away than have to like come to me and say like, oh, I want a refund or like you said shit in one of your lessons in your course. Like I, I don't, I don't think that that's right. And I want a refund. So like, I'd just rather not deal with that. So you can, yeah, it's, it's the, uh, it's the easier route for you to take. And I think, like you said, if you're sort of putting on airs, it's tiring to do that. Like it's definitely tiring to put on an appearance. Um, and I think one thing that's interesting that we both see online is, uh, and I've even caught myself doing this in the past, but you try to even make your company seem bigger than it is. Um, and I think that's maybe a strategy that some people take because they have that fear. What is it that you think people find, whether it's on your website or through your newsletter? Like, how are people connecting with you? Is it because you share about your personal life? Um, like, what are the elements that you think help convey who Paul is to your audience? Yeah, so like, I'm still a really private person. Like, I don't share very much about my personal life at all. So the the way that it kind of works though is what I do share, I share fully and honestly. And what I don't share is like just for me, right? Like I'd still rather have like some stuff that's just for me and some stuff that's like out there for everybody. And the stuff that's out there for everybody, I'm going to share like the good, the bad, the ugly. So for most of it for me is like running a business or being like a creative person or like involving money with art and that kind of like, I'm going to talk about all the times that I've completely fucked up and all the times where things have gone like incredibly well and in equal measure, just because I would rather, I would rather just be honest about it. Like it's just easier to, to just be honest about that kind of stuff. And it's funny too, because like you, you mentioned like the, the we, and like my first, when I was doing web design, um, when I started in the, in the 90s, I had like my tagline for 10 years was we build websites. And then I was thinking about it one day and I was like, 
who the fuck is we? <laughs> like, it's just me. And like, when people hire me, they were hiring me knowing that I wasn't like a big company. Like, I was getting hired by Fortune 500 companies, and like, they knew that they weren't getting like some agency or something. Like, they knew they were just getting Paul. So, I'm like, why, <laughs> why am I doing this? Like, this doesn't even make any sense. It's not even helping me in any way because people were coming to me because they wanted to work with me specifically. They weren't coming to me because they thought I was like some, like, some agency or something like that. So, yeah. How, mu- how much of that work do you think is uh, that people love your work and that's why they want to work with you, Paul Jarvis? And how much of that is that they love your communication and, and what you're about? Like, what's the mix there for somebody who's freelancing? Um, because I know from from our end, obviously we have certain people we work with that are just amazing to work with and we just love working with them, um, but their work is amazing too. And so it's maybe almost equal What's the breakdown uh, for somebody who's trying to get out there and, and promote their freelance brand? Yeah, I think the first thing, which you're, you're right, like you got to be good. <laughs> like there's, there's no way around it. You have to be good at what you do. But that's where a lot of people stop in, in terms of like personal growth and like figuring out how to run a business. Like you could be the very best photographer in the world. But if you suck to work with, you're never going to get a referral. Like if you are, if you can take the best photos, but are just awful to work with, you're not going to, you're not going to work. It's not going to work as a freelancer. So I think there needs to be kind of like equal measure there. I think you need to be like really good at communicating, like really good at dealing with people, really good at like making clients happy, really good at positioning your expertise and having clients come to you with problems that you can then solve instead of them telling you this is the problem and here's how I want you to solve it that kind of work is rarely very fun rarely very fun or very interesting so you have to be good but you also have to be able to talk to people you also be have to be able to communicate with people you have to be able to make people happy yeah which and they're is both a huge part. they're both hard work I think that's the thing that's interesting and it, it definitely resonates with me what you're saying with um you know, you can be great at a craft, but it doesn't mean you'll get business. And it makes me think of a friend of mine who uh, studied finance in school, but when he left, he became a videographer. And he was so great at just uh, making people happy, like you said, communicating, that he was getting so much more business uh, than the people who were trained for, you know, five, 10 years, just because he was able to communicate and, and get out there. Is, is your writing the way that you developed that skill? Like when did writing come into the picture? Because um, I, know, I know you were a designer and I want to talk some about how you landed some of those early gigs, but where did writing come into the picture? And, and maybe you can bring up uh, what your writing looks like today because you've got an email list and a book. Yeah, so the writing came into it quite quite a ways later. Like I, I was always, so or I'll rephrase. I think writing for my business came in a lot later. Like I had a blog in like nineteen ninety five or nineteen ninety six, but did it had you, absolutely how did you know they have nothing. I like the. I was a nerd. I liked the <laughs> internet. I don't know. I was. I'd come from like BBSs, and those were kind of fun. And I was meeting like some interesting people from there. I was on IRC a lot. And I just, people started to write and I was reading people's writing. I was like, this is kind of, you can, you can put your writing on the internet. And I was like, okay, I'm an angry little guy. I'm just going to like go off about whatever I want in my blog. And that's what it was. It was completely like ridiculous. But for, for work and stuff, it didn't, 
I didn't come into the picture until probably a couple years ago, like, I don't know, probably four or five years ago. And at, the, at that point, I'd been freelancing for over a decade. So a lot of the communication stuff that we were talking about was happening at like a client to client level. So all of the work that I was that I was doing, I was making sure that that client was so happy that they would go tell somebody else. And that's kind of like, you were kind of hinting at some, some further questions. We can kind of dig into that a bit, but like the communication in the beginning was one-to-one. And then several years ago, I decided to kind of go in a one-to-many route. And I started writing my newsletter, which is the Sunday dispatches, which I write every Sunday. Otherwise it'd be silly because it's called the Sunday dispatches. <laughs> um, and then writing, writing books and courses. How, how does the email list fit into the the overall, I don't want to say strategy, but just like you as Paul Jarvis, it, it seems like it's maybe the one thing that sort of threads everything. Is that is that the right assessment there that this email is like yeah. that almost like the backbone of all of your work? Well, my mailing list is my business. <laughs> like I'm like my mailing list is the first point of contact that I have with most potential customers. It's how most people hear about me. It's how most people keep in like up with me. It's how I communicate with my audience mostly. Like I'll send out an email on Sunday and I'll get two, three hundred replies sometimes and I'll sit for hours replying to people. But that drives almost all of my revenue. Like my mail like email is the, the probably like 95% or more of the revenue that I make as a business. So like I prioritize that one because I love it. Like it's awesome. I love writing and I love communicating with people on email. And two, it, it runs my business for me. Like I make all of the money that I make from my mailing list. There's, there's something about the constraint of email that I think is really beautiful too. Um, and I think it's just really helpful to have just that one channel that you can keep going back to, but you can also experiment with and you can try different things. And um, you teach a course uh, about how to use MailChimp. And so obviously you're very versed there too. But yeah, one thing I've found is just, I love the constraint of email because it sort of forces you to to take a step back and simplify and um, yeah, just communicate. It's almost like a more raw form of uh, talking to your customers. Yeah, and it's so old. Like, it's old. Like, email has existed for a really long time. And everybody keeps saying, like, oh, email is dead. And it's like, all right, cool. <laughs> like, I, honestly, I don't well, care. It's, it seems so to have a resurgence. I mean, I think what's interesting is it, yeah. it almost seems to be the opposite. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I don't have a Facebook account or a LinkedIn account. I, I'm on Twitter to post snarky comments. I'm on Instagram to post pictures of my pet rats. Like, I don't use any other channel for, like, business communication other than my newsletter. And that's because it works and it's because I like totally. it. Totally. So, a, a while back, I think it was last year, you told me something that just sort of blew my mind um, because it was something I never thought that I could do before. And what you told me was that you batched all of your work for your email, meaning that you would write uh, a majority of what was coming out that month, maybe in a day, maybe in two days. And I just remember hearing that and being like, oh, you can do that? Because I've kept, and I've written for longer than this, but I kept a blog for about three years and I never once wrote more than one post in a day. Like it was almost always the day before I would write it. Uh, so how did you, how did you know you could do that? Like, when did you learn to do that? Did somebody else tip you off or did you just have that realization one day? Like I can make this easier on myself. 
Yeah, so I think there's there's two things there. I think the first is that it's really, like, it's hard to be creative unless you make space to be creative. So if I was under a deadline of, like, oh, I got to send the, the email out in 20... Also, I suck at writing. Like, I need to send it to my copy editor who has to go through it a few times, sends it back to me. Like, there's, like I can't do it last minute or it's going to be a really crappy email. But I, I need space to be able to sit down and, and, like, get the ideas out. I can't be kind of forced into it. Otherwise, it's going to not be as good because I could write three or four articles and then scrap two of them and be left with one or two. And if I was under a deadline and it was like, oh, I got to send this out in 15 minutes, it's like, I just wrote a shitty article, but like, I don't have anything else. So I got to hit send. So I think I need that space in order to be creative. I mean, everybody's different. But for me, like if I'm under the gun of like a super tight deadline like that, it's really hard to do my best work. The second thing is that sometimes life is going to shit on your face right? Like, sometimes things are going to come up. Sometimes, like, maybe your pet has to go to the vet for an emergency. Maybe you get a flat tire on the way home to write the, the thing that needs to go up at a certain time. Like, you, there's so little control that you have over things that can happen in any given day, especially when you're a freelancer, especially when you work for yourself, that, like, I couldn't rely on that and still be consistent. And consistency for me is one of the most important things for my business, like me showing up every single Sunday, no exceptions, is part of, I think, what has made uh, my newsletter as successful as it is. And I wouldn't be able to do that if I was like waiting till the last second. So it also makes me feel good. Like if I know that I've got four weeks of blog of like articles written for my newsletter, I'm like, oh, yeah, like I, I got this. And then like I'll slack off for two weeks and I'm like, oh, I only have two weeks. Now I got to write like three or four more articles. So it's almost like a game where it's like how far ahead can I stay of of like the deadlines that I have? Because then it's like if somebody's like, hey, buddy, do you want to like go for a hike or like go rent a boat and go out on the ocean? And I'm like, fuck yeah. Like I don't, I, I don't have anything. I would never have anything that's due tomorrow and if i do i've done something wrong a lot of people a lot of people wait so. to be inspired uh and so how do you how do you see that fitting in the picture i don't i don't care so i don't really care about inspiration or motivation i think that's a cop-out that most that holds a lot of creative people back from being professional right so like if i'm making a living as a writer or even like when I was making a living as a musician, I couldn't just like, eh, the muse isn't striking me today. Like, I'm not going to write a song. It's like, fuck no. I need to write an album so I can put it out and make some money off that and then tour the shit out of it and then make some money off that. Same with writing. Like, I basically make my living as a writer now. So unless I'm sitting down to write, then I'm not doing my job. Like, an accountant doesn't show up to work and be like, I don't feel like crunching numbers today, guys. Like, I'm just going to sit here. It's like, it doesn't work that way. This is a job for me. I love doing the job, but I'm just going to sit down and do it. And what I found as well is like, I could think that I'm the least inspired ever to write. And I'll sit down and I'll spend like 15 minutes in just like utter awfulness. But then it'll start to come out and then it'll be a bit better. And then like, if I'm batching my writing days and I have like four or five articles to write, then by like the second article, I'm like going pretty fast. By like the third or fourth article, I'm like humming along where the fifth article is just like shooting out of my fingertips like laser beams. So like, I don't think that, I think inspiration is a crutch. 
that and I think we can kind of bend inspiration to our will. So like I don't sit down, I, like I don't wait to be inspired to do my work. I do my work and then I get inspired. I think we all have it backwards. I think that like waiting for inspiration to strike is bullshit. I think you have to start doing your work and then inspiration is going to strike. Yeah, and sometimes I think what amazes me, uh, and I think this podcast is almost an example. What's incredible is once you sit down and you get through those first 15 minutes that are just a struggle, like you said, all of a sudden you find yourself writing or saying or creating things you like didn't even expect that you were going to make. Um, I, I find that and with my work, I sit down, I start writing for a bit, and then suddenly I'm writing about something that's a different topic, but it's so much better than what I was even expecting to make that day. And I think that's part of the showing up is you almost don't even know sometimes how, it, how it's going to go and it surprises you in a good way. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned a band. L- let's talk some about how you worked before you're doing the work you were now. I know you were a designer for a while. Tell me some about Marie Forleo. And I also want to jump back even further. Like, What was Paul's life like before he was making stuff on the internet? Because you've been doing it for so long now. Yeah, well, before I was doing stuff on the internet, I was like in high school. <laughs> like, okay, I don't know if there was much before that. Like, and, and the touring musician. Let's let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, that was while I was doing um, while I was doing design. So it, it became hard because like I was really enjoying like doing studio uh, music work and touring. But I also really love doing web design, and it's really hard to juggle the two. Like when you're in an independent band, and you're on the road, you're driving, playing, or sleeping. Like those are the those are the three elements that make up your day. So like I couldn't I, like I would have these ideas like oh maybe I'll like people get all this client work done for websites on the road. It's like no, I'm either driving or playing music or sleeping. It's like only those three things can fit. So, yeah, I I eventually had to kind of make a decision, like, do I want to be a touring musician, which wasn't paying a whole lot, or do I want to be doing web design, which was paying a whole lot? And I was like, well, I kind of like both of these things. So I, yeah, I just, I just ended up making the the hard choice to like stop doing music as much as I was doing, because I was on the road for like three, four months of the year, some years, and it was like, yeah, it was it was hard to kind of give that up. But was, was there a, was there a dream for you? Like, did you ever sort of look into the future at that time? You know, you're you're driving around, you're touring, it's exhausting. You're doing websites and you're making money. Uh, what was like at that point your sort of dream in the future? Like ten years from now, I Paul Jarvis will be. Yeah, I didn't really have one. I think that's why I could give. I think that's why I could give it up because, like, I didn't want to be like a famous rock star. <laughs> like, I wasn't like, oh, I want to play stadium. I was like, I just didn't care about that. I just like playing music. I like playing music for people. I didn't. Ma- I didn't matter if it was like twenty people at like some seedy little bar or like a couple thousand people at a bigger venue. I just kind of like playing music. So I didn't really have. A, I didn't have a goal or a dream past that. Same with web, same with now. Like, I don't know what I'm going to be doing next year, let alone, well, okay, I guess I do know what I'm going to be doing next year because <laughs> books take a long time to be released by a publisher. But past that, I have no idea. And I've never really had an idea. And I kind of like that because in kind of, that can kind of leave me open to awesome stuff that comes my way that I would never have thought of. Like the year before I started writing almost full time, I never would have thought I'd be a writer. 
like when I was in school, I never would have thought I would be a web designer. Before I was playing music, like just in my room as a kid, I never thought I'd be like playing shows every single night across North America. So I, I just kind of leave myself open. Like I don't really care what I'm doing in a couple of years. I just hope it's cool. See, that, that seems like a confidence thing to me too, because I think you're able to move between these different identities without caring, which I, I think is the the right way to be because the truth is we have so much opportunity now, right? I mean, I think you probably say no to so much stuff, but there's also this confidence again in uh, deciding, hey, I'm a writer. Uh, hey, I'm a podcaster. Hey, I'm going to write a book. Um, and it seems like you figured out some way for you to, to stay open and then feel confident once you've sort of made that change. Do you see yourself like as a author, as a writer, like, would you describe yourself as those things or are you Paul Jarvis and those just happen to be things that you do? Yeah. Like I kind of think labels are for jars, but I also like, it's just easier sometimes because it's like when you're a musician, everybody's like, well, what kind of music do you play? Or like, who do you sound like? And every musician's like, I don't sound like anybody, but yeah, you do. You sound like somebody (laughs) like you're, there's somebody that you can compare yourself to that will just make it easier for somebody to like understand mm-hmm. like who you are. Same with like, so I think that the labels can be important, even though creative people try to stay away from them. But like, I don't know. I don't really like it changes for me. Like I wasn't a podcaster until a couple of years ago. I wasn't a writer, or a, like published author until years before that. Like, I don't really like I think that the titles or the the things that I do are so fluid that I don't I don't care enough about them to try to like hold on to them or to, like they don't really define me or they don't really mean much more than they are to me like I think it's pretty awesome that people read my writing and that I get paid to do it cuz it's hard to do that but like if I wasn't a writer tomorrow it wouldn't be the end of the world like there's other totally. cool yeah. stuff so I, I definitely agree. And I think that's kind of the idea f- for the show really is just, I think we have this opportunity now where we don't just have to be on one track and we've got so many amazing tools that all of a sudden, you know, when I was growing up, I feel like I had a lot of different sort of dreams. Like it was like, Oh, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could do that. And now you can kind of do all of them, um, which is the amazing thing. And, and you can change industries like, like you've done. I know you teach a lot of people online and I know you've got multiple courses. Um, do you think that people in your audience are trying to do things similar to you? And if so, what's holding them back from launching the podcast or starting a blog or writing an email? <laughs> Their own bullshit that they believe pretty much. What are, like, those, what are those beliefs? So like, so like what held me back from being a writer was like me thinking, well, you're not a writer. So what the fuck? Like you, you can't be a writer cause you're not a writer. And then one day I was just like, well, that's stupid. Like, why do I, why do I believe this story that I'm telling myself? Like, the only way to be a writer is to write. Like, the only way to be a musician is to play music in front of other people. So it's like, I think that that's kind of the, the issue a, a lot of times, a lot of times that I see. And I think that I don't want my audience to be like me. I want them to be like them. Like I and I kind of think that that's why I like the people in my audience as much as I do, is because they're not trying to emulate; they're just trying to like 
have a couple of things that they learn from somebody else who's in like a different place than them, whether it's a good, better place or a worse place, whatever. But like, I think that they're all just trying to figure out who they are as well. And I think that that's what's cool. Like, it's not like there's a bunch of mini Paul Jarvis's running around trying to like, (laughs) trying to start podcasts and newsletters and, and courses and stuff like that. Like that wouldn't be... That'd be flattering, but I don't think that would that would serve them as, as well as like being them could serve them. Has has something surprised you about your community? I mean, I think one thing that's been fun with Death of Stock is you end up talking to your customers, and you're just blown away because you never expected uh, certain types of people to be in your audience, or just their life story is just incredible or different. Like, what binds your community together, and is there anything that sort of stands out that's just like exciting for you when you talk to somebody? Uh, maybe who's gone through a course or who's in your Slack group. Yeah, I think it, the first thing that was kind of surprising, although it shouldn't have been, was that they're awesome. Like, I really like talking to the people who are listening, who are paying attention. And I don't even think that they're my community. I was talking to my buddy, um, Chris Brogan, who's written a bunch of like really popular books. And he was like, I don't, it's not my community. Like, I don't think anybody can own a community. I think it's the community that you have the pleasure to serve. And I think that, like, the people that pay attention to me, a lot of them probably pay attention to Death to Stock. A lot of them pay attention to, like, Jason Zook or Justin Jackson or Marie Forley or Danielle Laporte or, who, or whoever, right? So I think that the, the kind of, the thing that binds them together is is the, the willingness to kind of question things. And I think that's really what my brand is, is, like, here's how everybody else does it. Why is that? And does it have to be that way? Right? Like, that's like everybody's like, oh, MailChimp is a shitty, like, ESP. I'm like, really? Because I use it and I get quite a bit out of it. So, <laughs> how about that? <laughs> how about I show you how I use it? And right. then if you can get something out of that, then that's awesome. So, I think that, I think that what I like about my audience is, is their willingness to be challenged by, by ideas and to not necessarily agree with everything because that wouldn't be fun for either of us. Sure. But like they're they're willing to kind of think about stuff, which is rad. Yeah. No, that's that's incredible and I think just for, based on what I've seen, I I'd, I'd say that's totally the case as well. I think that's for sure the best way to describe your brand. What's what's the worst advice uh you've ever gotten whether you took it or not? Oh, there's so much. Like I think when people try to say that it's, it's funny that the internet has kind of turned into this. And, and it's that people assume that seeing something work one time means seeing something work all the time. Like, oh, I put this like pop-up on my, on my website and it's converting at like 40%. Or like, I spent two grand on Facebook ads this month and I made six grand. Like, you have to do that because it's totally going to work. It's like never going to fucking work the same. <laughs> it's like, it does, if everything was that easy, if everything was just like, here's the blueprint that this first chick did that like had a successful business and now I just have to take this and run with it. It's like everybody would have their own business. Everybody would be having money fights on their private yachts. <laughs> like it just like it doesn't work that way. Like when people start to think that like this this n of one is like statistically valid, it, there's problems. And and that's kind of why I like to question things. It's not because I'm a shit disturber. Well, it's mostly because I'm a shit disturber, but it's also because there's more than one way to do pretty much everything. Well, and if you're creating your own job, which is what you've done, uh, what a lot of your peers have done, it sounds like what the people in your audience are, are trying to do for themselves, which is really, how can I create my own job out of this kind of unique uh, viewpoint I have or thing I want to express, thing I want to make? Um, 
So yeah, I, I think if you're creating your own job, it's even less likely that there's a path you can just follow. What what was something that was way harder than you expected when you started out? Hmm. I'm trying to think. It could be it could I be think... something right now that you're just like, oh, and I know you're writing a book and maybe that's a good segue there, but <laughs> um yeah, what's something that like you know, you're building this confidence, you're launching products, you're um, obviously doing well online, and then you're sort of working on something new and you're just like, oh, dang, okay, I didn't realize this is going to be like a whole whole new thing to figure out. Well, yeah, like definitely software is way harder than it seems because there's so much involved. And I think that if anybody's thinking about starting a software product, they need to be okay with doing a lot of support unless they have funding, right? Like I run a couple software products and most of the work is helping people use the products. Like obviously in building it, there's a lot of like development work first, but like after that, it's like, I want people to actually use this stuff. So I got to help them use this stuff. And then I have to create like training for this stuff. I have to create like, uh, like articles for knowledge bases. Like there's so much that goes into software that isn't writing code. Right. See, so like I, it's, I was going to say, I think that's a unique perspective from you though, because I don't think that everybody thinks that way. And actually one thing I've been blown away by is how much time you do spend on support. Um, and, and I know you just created a bunch of videos for your newest software product, um, which I'm an early member to. I'm very excited about that. You were the uh, first person. The first, to use yeah. Can you can <laughs> you can you just pitch us a few of your software products real quick, and then, and then I want to circle back to the hard part of building software because I know a lot of people are are wanting at some point to probably build something like that. So what are you, what are your software products right now, and then we'll jump back in. Yeah. So the the software that I'm focused on right now is Fixtail, which connects Stripe payments to Mailchimp. Um, and you can see that there's a theme with Mailchimp. I love that company. <laughs> but um, there's that. There's also WP Complete, which um, helps students in online courses on WordPress track their progress, so they can mark lessons as complete. They can see on their dashboard what they've checked off, what they haven't. Those are the two main ones that I'm working on now. And yeah, I'm working on both of them with a guy named Zach Gilbert, who is a phenomenal programmer, but even more, he's a phenomenal support person. Like most programmers don't want to talk to people. And Zach is super friendly, super like excited to, to show people what they need to do to fix the problem that they're having. And that's why, that's why I really like working with them too. How, how did you link up with Zach and what's the relationship um, for how work gets done? Cause um, I've spoken with you both uh, for Fixtail. That was the product um, that I purchased and uh, had a great experience ch chatting with him. I mean, it was definitely true what you said. So yeah. How'd you meet him and what's the relationship so, now? So that's we're family now, but <laughs> yeah. um, Le it's legally funny, funny. like, yeah, we're, we're, yeah, basically. So, Jason Zook and I, who have a podcast called Invisible Office Hours, one of our seasons was to create a product called Of Course Books. And so the season of the podcast, which was 12 episodes, started with an idea and ended, hopefully, at the time, hopefully, with us launching a software product. And I think episode two was like, we're looking for a developer. And Zach was in um, a Slack group that I was part of. And we didn't really talk that much, but like I kind of knew who he was. And so when we said like, hey, email us um, at our email address, we're building a software product, we're looking for a third founder, a technical founder, let's talk. And so he emailed us, I don't remember what the rest of the email said, but it started with like, hey, weirdos. And Jason and I were like, yes, 
done. So we talked to him. We got working on it. We we built the software called, of course, books, which we then sold. But yeah, so we just basically started talking every day on Slack. And then I had an idea. I hired him to build basically a version of Fixtail for all of my courses. And then when people started to see how MailChimp worked on my end, because all of my videos show my MailChimp account, and people were like, how do you see the ROI? Uh, like, how are you seeing all this revenue data? I'm like, I, I hired Zach to build a plugin. And then we were like, maybe we could make this into software. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. So yeah, do, we started a partnership. Do you always work with somebody before you like work with them? Was that the test project that you then knew you could work on something else? And is that a common theme for how you work with somebody? Yeah, I think that a lot of times, especially with creatives, like we just want to try, like we're just trusting people for some reason, right? Like, but I think that the trust can be incremental. So like I can, I can assume good in everybody or in strangers, but it doesn't mean that I trust them entirely at first. It means that the trust can, that there's potential for that trust to grow, so I think that doing little projects first with people that you think, oh, maybe I want to partner with this person in the future, like just do a little thing. And then a little, like a bit bigger of a thing, then a bigger of a thing. And then, then you're in like basically a brotherhood with that person for the rest of your life. And he's coming to visit in a couple weeks. That's awesome. It's always a blast <laughs> meeting people that you know online in person, which we will exactly. need to line up at some point. But yeah. uh, so it's it seems like, and I want to touch on company of one now because you're a company of one, but you're working with people. And it seems like in very smart ways in terms of how you structure it. And I think it's always tough tough for people, especially when they start out. How do I find a developer? Uh, how do I structure how I'm going to work with them? You know, is this sort of a full-time thing? Should I contract somebody? Like, tell me first about the premise of company of one, which not just the book, but just sort of your your take on on that. Um, and then how you're structuring these different products that you have, whether it's a course or software, when you're working with somebody else. Yeah, so the idea for Company of One isn't necessarily like literally you work for yourself and you work by yourself. It's more that you question the idea that growth in a business and growing a business is always a good idea. So for me and probably the smartest idea that I've ever had was like, what would happen if I don't grow my business? Cause I, when I was doing web design, I was pretty popular for like over a decade and I had like a waiting list and I could, I just kept raising my rates and people kept hiring me. So like I could have turned that into a business, an agency, a bigger thing. We could have like worldwide headquarters and offices and shit. And I was like, what if I don't do that? Like, what if I just keep working for myself? And it's like, I kind of worked back. And this is something I was talking to um, James Clear about this, the like habits expert guy. And he's like, a lot of times people don't really work backwards into a business from the type of life that they want. And I thought that that was really smart. And he's super smart. And he was like, I kind of, I, I took a while to build my business. And I was kind of the same way. Because he was like, well, I kind of thought about like what I wanted to fill my day with. And then I kind of worked backwards into what a business would be that would accomplish that. So if we, if we instead go like the traditional route to like, if you're successful, then you need to grow. Like I could, and I could have ended up in a place where like I'm managing a team, which I don't want to do. I could have to like travel a lot, which I don't want to do. Like I could be 
so separated from the work because I'm running things, I wouldn't be happy. So why would I do that? Why would I go after that growth? Just because growth is supposed to be what happens after like you do well. So that's kind of the, the idea for the book is that you, maybe you don't have to grow unless it makes sense, of course. Like, so I think a couple of good examples of that is like um, Basecamp are a really good company in one, even though they're like 55 employees, but they don't really grow and they don't really grow that quickly. They've ne- they don't take on, I think they took on investment from Jeff Bezos and that's about it. Or like Buffer is another good example where like their, their focus is doing better. And if growth happens because of that after that, then that's cool, but they don't want to grow and then kind of catch up to that growth or try to catch up to that growth. Totally. No, and I, I don't even I, remember what the second part oh, of the yeah, question no, was. I'll, I'll, get, just, I'll get to that. No, 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 that's, that's, um, what's amazing about that is that what happens, what I think happens to most people is they see that for themselves, what you're saying, and they, they buy into it after they've made a bunch of mistakes, you know, after mm-hmm. they've scaled a few businesses and been unhappy or um, scaled one business and become unhappy. And I think it's amazing that you were able to sort of question that prior to that point. You sort of avoided that big pitfall. And of course, it's all about being right for you. You know, this is the right choice for mm-hmm. you. Was there somebody out there that you saw that sort of was doing that? And you're like, that guy's doing that. And his lifestyle is sort of the lifestyle I'm looking for. Maybe I could do that too. Or was it really like, are, are you introspective um, in a way that you're really able just to realize that yourself? Yeah, like I don't think there might have been somebody that I've since forgotten about because this was a long time ago that I kind of made that decision. But like, yeah, like since then, like obviously there's a ton of people that do it now and they do it even like way better than I do. But like at the time, I didn't, I don't think that there was anybody and I just felt like kind of a weirdo (laughs) about it. Well, and you just asked the right question, which I think is an important thing is sort of asking the right questions. And Mm -hmm. it seems like the pattern for you is one question, which is, what if I don't do that? (laughs) Is there another example of where you asked that question and it's, it's turned out well for you? Um, yeah, like for a lot of things, like I don't, I would rather kind of do things my way. Like even with, um, I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about this, but I don't really care. (laughs) So like for the, for the book that I'm writing, it's with a publisher and in the contract, they said like, okay, well, there's a a two week period where you're doing, um, a book tour. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. And I was like, okay, well, what, what's going to happen? Like, am I going to lose this book deal? Like, this is some massive publisher and like, I'm some nobody. And they're like, okay. It's like, okay, that's pretty cool. Like, obviously, like I picked the publisher that I wanted to work with um, because they were awesome. But like, I could just like, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was like, is this all going to come like horribly crashing down on me? And it did. Well, the, they were just like, okay. It just goes to show, yeah, that the rules are made up. I mean, people are making up yeah. a, lot, a lot of these rules. And yeah. um, and yeah. my agent was like, that could have just been boilerplate. Like, no, no human could have, maybe, maybe no human even put that in there. Like, it could have just been part of their contract, like boilerplate. And I was like super freaking out about it. I'm like, I'm not going to do this, but like, I hope nothing bad happens if I say no to this. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. So I'm not going to ask you uh, how to get a book deal because I bet so many people are asking you that. What I want to ask you, how does somebody charge uh, $300 for a course? 
Yeah. Um, you just do it. Like, I think that it, with, with teaching and with content, there's this weird, like, idea of value. Like, the same content could be in a book, but you would get, like, laughed at for charging $300 for most books. The same content could be in a podcast, but you don't charge customers to listen to podcasts. The same information could be in a course, and those range from like fifty bucks to like three or four thousand dollars or more. And it could st- it could still be the exact same content. So there's this weird like idea of like perceived value, where I just kind of went. So the first course that I taught, Creative Class. It took four hours to do. I looked at the stats and freelancers in general in the United States were making $75 an hour. So I'm like, okay, the course takes four hours. If people are making $75 an hour, then they're investing in themselves for four hours and they need to give me $300 for it. And that seemed to work. I don't A-B test pricing because I think that's a little sketchy sometimes. It's really hard to do it not sketchily. So I just kept it. I was just like, okay, my courses are $300. And then when I launched some of my other courses, I'm like, okay, I'm going to start the pricing a little lower because it's way easier to raise Mm -hmm. pricing. It's way harder to drop pricing and not piss off everybody that's ever bought from you. So like, I don't know how to, I'm not smart enough to be able to do that. So I'm like, I'm just going to start a bit lower than 300. I think Chimp Essentials started at like 179 or something like that. Now it's 274. But like, yeah, I just kind of, the $300 range worked. So I was just like, okay, I don't know what to charge for a course either. So it's just like, I'm just going to pick that yeah. and go with it. And, and, and of, it of course, worked. people are spending $10,000 on college courses and stuff. So I think yeah, an online exactly. education is obviously continuing to progress in terms of how people are learning the skills that are actually uh, they can actually use to be paid today. That's really interesting what you said about pricing, where you sort of calculated it in that way. Is, do you have any other? So I'm just trying to review the tips here. So you know, tip one for pricing was you sort of calculated what you thought your target customer made hourly, and then you know built some multiple on that. And the second thing was start lower than you want because you can always raise it. Is there any other pricing sort of strategy or tip you'd give somebody um, who's who's maybe stuck on the thing they're trying to launch? Yeah, I mean, you're not going to know. Like asking people how much they pay for something is never going to work. Like you're never going to get a legit answer, even if people mean well. Like what people say they will pay for something and what people actually pay for something is 100% different all the time. Do you do, do, you do customer like, in, It is almost Do you do customer, customer interviews? Like are you, um, bef- oh, before yeah. you launch a product, do you do that? Yeah, so I basically launch courses like software. So I have like, I'll get a couple people to like go through it for free. Like people that I know in my audience who are like gung ho about everything that I do. And then I'll have like an alpha tester group where they'll pay a bit of money because there's no value in something that you get for free. So even if they're paying like 50 bucks or like 25 bucks, I'm going to ask them for money in order to go through it because they're going to get early access. And I still want to, and I don't want the money because I want to make money off of them. I want the money. So they put value into it. And then I'll do like a beta tester round of like 20 to 30 people to, to go through it. And I'll charge them like almost the amount that it's going to be sold for. And then I kind of collect all the feedback I make it a bit better. I make some changes. Then I release it to another group of people. Then I make some changes. Then I make some changes. And then when I finally release it to the public, I've had like, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 people go through the course. And I feel a bit more confident about it because they're seeing results. I can use testimonials that they have. Like when we let you into Fixtail early, 
we could see exactly how you use the software and then we could tweak things to make you like it even more. And then when we launched the website, we could put a testimonial from you, Mr. David Sherry on the homepage of Fixtail, right? So like, I think that this testing isn't just for like software. I think it applies to everything. Like I do the same with books. Like I get people to like beta read my books and then like alpha read my books kind of thing. It's so simple, but I think so many people don't do that. And I think part of it is the seduction of a big launch, right? Like we, you see these articles about how somebody launched and immediately thousands of people bought. Uh, And then I think the other part is it's really scary to take that first step to show somebody the thing you've made. But I think what you've done well is one controlled the group and you've known that they are interested in supporting you. Um, maybe they give you feedback in the past. And it's also just a small group and, and they don't expect a ton because you're telling them straight up, this is an early version. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly like, it is going to work. And if it doesn't, then I'm going to fix stuff pretty quick. Like look at how quickly Zach and I fix some of the bugs that, that happen right. in your account. But like, yeah, it, it's easier to build confidence incrementally than just like I'm gonna climb to the top of the like twenty foot diving board and like <laughs> jump off into the pool. It's like I don't know how to do that. Totally. Is <laughs> so, is there a, is there a product that was a flop? Is there something that you put out and uh, you sent it to people and everybody said this this isn't interesting? It's not for me. Yeah, I probably I'm like fifty fifty on products that do well and products that completely bomb. So there's tons. There's like, uh, I'm trying to remember the names of them. Unlost, Our Connection, um, Good something. <laughs> I can't remember. I remember the robot. The robot's name was Carl. That was the logo for the software. That's awesome. You need a yeah, graveyard like on your site. Of of, of I stuff. totally do. So, so does that mean that if it's a 50-50 shot, does that mean that everybody just needs to put something out and you, it's just going to be a coin toss every time? Yeah, like you can kind of offset things a little bit. Like you can, like I I pretty much know at this point if something's going to be a flop or not before I put a ton of work into it because I built up an audience and I can like, I can segment my list. So like, hey, if you're interested in learning about this from me, like click this simple poll in my mailing list and like if a hundred people click it then I'm like ah oh, it's probably not gonna be good. If like six thousand people click it, I'm like, oh I think I might be onto something. And like maybe I'll put up a splash page and see like how many people sign up to it that aren't on my mailing list. And then maybe I'll have like a little video that I share or like I'll put it up on like beta list or something like that. And like so I kind of test things along the way. So it's not like it's a flop after six or eight months of work. Like I've been there and I've done that a ton of times in earlier in my career. And it's kind of silly to do that, but you can really start to test um, as, as early as possible or even release a product with less shit, right? Like creative class. My first idea was like, Oh, I'm going to have a course with like 36 lessons or something like that. And I was like, well, that's going to take me six months to do. So, okay, I'm going to have a course that has five or seven, le- I think it was seven lessons. There's seven lessons in it. And that only took me a couple weeks to do. So I could release it and get feedback. And okay, now I know how to make it better. So I put more work into it if it's paying well. And then I put more work into it if it's paying well. So like, it's kind of okay to kind of like iterate on that and like do little sprints of, of work and then see how it falls and then do more if it's doing well or change if it's not and that sort of thing. Yeah. And when you say it like that, it's not, it's not like it's this huge risk. You put a link in an email. If people click it, yeah. you'll, you know, follow up and do something else. You have an idea for a yeah. course rather than getting carried away and making it, uh, you know, 20 lessons or whatever, maybe I'll just make it four. 
Um, I think, yeah, I, I think that's another common mistake for people. And if you're sort of crushed by the launch of something, it means you've probably built it in the wrong way um, from kind of the get go. Um, so yeah, I, I, I want to transition to uh, some quicker questions and before we get to that, I did want to bring up rats um, and also <laughs> veganism because I found you through your vegan cookbook. That was how I came across your work initially. Um, just, I'm just curious because, like, I feel like rats such it's such a part of your brand now. Like, yep. did you have rats as kids? Like, do you just you just love yeah. rats? Like, how how did that start? Yeah. Yeah, I think rats are misunderstood. Like they're typically like laboratory animals that people don't care about or they're vermin that need to be exterminated that people don't care about. And I don't know, I got, for some reason, I got a pet rat as a kid and I was like, these little guys and girls are pretty awesome. Like, and then it just kind of, it just kind of stuck. And yeah, I've had rats for, for quite a while now. What? And I think that it's, yeah, I just think that they're rad. What's your uh, What's your favorite analog tool? I know you've been doing a lot of gardening. Um, do you have something that's just like a kind of like a treasure of yours that isn't digital? Um, right now, it's the hose nozzle that sounds super dirty. <laughs> the, the D- describe it for, for me. <laughs> yeah, it was long and hard. So it's just I, I had like you know the usual nozzles for like a garden hose. It looks kind of like a gun with like a big thing that you press. This is like a more ergonomic. It's it's like if uh, Herman Miller designed garden, and it was like ten bucks. It was like not very expensive, but it's like if Herman Miller, or like Dyson vacuums or Apple computers, designed like the nicest, most functional with one hand. It still sounds dirty, man. This like garden nozzle, because like I do a ton of gardening, and like I have a lot of garden to to water, and part of it, like I could create like an automated system where it waters everything for me, but like I find it almost like meditative to like get out into my garden for like 30, 40 minutes and water everything every day. Mm-hmm. So it's like yeah. it's a nice break for you too between work. yeah. Uh, do you consume much in terms of podcasts, Netflix, music, and just give me like three highlights for you in any of those categories, if if at all. Yeah, so I do. I don't listen to podcasts, which is sad because <laughs> I make a lot of them. Um, except for so Reply All. There's I think it's episode um, like one hundred two and one hundred three or something. It's called like Long Distance or The Distance, where Alex, the the host, gets a call from like a computer scammer and he ends up like in India talking to the, like, it's just this like ridiculous story that I think is uh, amazing. So that was one pot. That's like probably the only podcast I've listened to <laughs> lately. Um, Netflix. I just finished watching um, the first season of a typical, which is about a kid who's on the autism spectrum. Super, super interesting, super, super hilarious. Um, music, I think right now, I, so when I'm writing, I like to listen to the same thing over and over again, which I'm sure is really annoying to my wife, but like I'm listening to key theory, like almost on repeat, like just one album of key theory on repeat. It's just like, I don't know why, but it's just like really, really easy to write to. Mm, Interesting. So, yeah. And is there somebody you follow on social media? That's just a blast to follow either Instagram, Twitter. Um, yeah, there's, and I can't even remember her username. There's this, there's this lady in the States that has a bunch of rats and like her rats are super, super famous. 
And so, like, that's my favorite Instagram account. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I can't even. It's like awful. Every, like, everybody has. Everybody is. has like one of those where it's just a really specific <laughs> category, and like only you know about them, like in your whole city, basically. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Who, who do you? But somehow there's like twenty eight thousand followers or something of this lady with these rats. Yeah, and I think that's another great lesson. Just goes to show you can really kind of carve out your own little unique niche in almost anything. Yeah. Who do you see in business or like in the creative world? And you just think to yourself, like, how does that person do what they do? Like, how did they do that? Um, I don't, I don't know if there's much that is like mysterious. Cause like Perhaps, I under, cause I like, suppose. yeah, like I'm kind of a technician. So like I have to figure out how things work, but like there's definitely some people who do like just awesome work and like I'm, I'm in awe of what they put out. So people like Alex Franzen or Danielle Laporte or like Jessica Abel, um, a cartoonist and an amazing writer. Um, is it, just is it the like quality, that. the consistency? Like what, what yeah, like catches it's, it's your It's all eye. of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like it's all of it. It's like the whole package. It's like these people are just like really good at being captivating. Mm. And I think that's what I can't like – I read so much for work and like I'm in like, I guess that like marketing and online business world. And most of it's boring. Like most of it's super boring or most of it's like just not that fun. And I think when people put like themselves into it, when people put like something unique or something remarkable about themselves into it, like Alexander Franzen's newsletter is awesome. Because uh, like I don't know what's gonna I don't know what's gonna happen the next week. <laughs> totally, like, I just I honestly don't. It could be something about working out. It could be something about writing. Like I don't know. It could be something about food. I don't know. Yeah, but it's awesome. Yeah, it's somebody who is. It's sort of what we were talking about earlier. It's somebody who's able to just be there as themselves, showing up, sharing what they want. Um, so I, I want to take just the last question. And again, thank you so much just for sharing all this uh, with us and with the audience. I know you said you've, you've thought maybe about a year in advance. Um, I'll ask a question two different ways. What's next for you? Um, and another way of looking that, at that question is if you had to start over again, um, you know, where would you start? What industries are exciting? I'm, I'm sort of curious about like how you see things progressing over the next you know, five years. Yeah, I mean, what's next for me is the book comes out through my publisher at the end of next year. So, like, I usually don't plan that far in advance, but just by the nature of the traditional publishing world, that's what's going to happen. As far as what's next, like, I, it's funny because, like, I went to university for a year and then I quit. But, like, I went to university for computer science and artificial intelligence and I'm so completely bored by AI stuff and like bots and all of that. Like, it's just, I'm just so bored of all of that. Like, I just don't even, I don't even care if Elon Musk is talking about it. Like, it's just not, it's just not interesting to me. I think for me, like I am interested in cars a lot. I love cars. So that would be something like I would love to, like if I was starting over, like maybe I would become a mechanic or maybe I would become like a, a race car driver or something like that. That would be cool. Hey, maybe maybe it's I would still probably suck. Maybe it. it's still coming down the line. Yeah, who knows? It could. I do. I do like days at the at the track, but yeah, definitely, definitely not awesome. And I think I like things like that that I know absolutely. Like I like watching the show, so you think you can dance because I know zero about dance. It's just interesting to see people who are really good at their craft 
like put it out there for people. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know what a good dance is. I don't know what a bad dance is. I don't know nothing about dancing, but it's really, really interesting. And it's really kind of, it, yeah, it's just, I, so I like that kind of stuff. I like stuff that I know absolutely nothing about because I find that stuff I know about ends up being boring, which is kind of bad, mm-hmm. but that's the way it goes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again uh, for jumping on. I will definitely link uh, the book up. Um, is there a date set for that yet? Late 2018. Late 2018. Okay. And, yeah. and I'm assuming you'll probably tease that sometime next year uh, to some early followers or something like that. Or, or does yeah, that not the, work with the my, book? Um, well, yeah, my mailing list is definitely going to know about it first, and they're going to be able to pre-order it first, and they're going to like know any of the, the wacky stuff I'm going to be doing around launch. Perfect. So, like, I, all I care about is my subscribers, so they get my most they get the most attention from me at all times. Awesome. Well, we will link up yeah. the newsletter then uh, with the show and the show notes on the site. Thank you so much for being with us and for jumping on. That was, uh, yeah, great to chat with you, as always. Yeah, buddy. Awesome. Thanks, man. 